Thank you for joining us wherever you are. This podcast episode is brought to you by the Old Ways Actual Play Team. This actual play uses the Cthulhu Dark Rules by Graham Walmsley. This actual play is performed by adults and in an adult setting. While we try very hard to stick to languages for all ages, listeners should know that this podcast may include mature themes. All content, including names, places, events, companies, and etc., that may bear resemblance to entities living or dead, is strictly coincidental. My name is Michael Diamond, and for tonight's game, I will be your keeper. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of the Old Ways Podcast. I'm your keeper normally, Keeper Michael, but today I'm going to be turning the table and the hand of fate and glory over to our storyteller in residence, Rena. So please take it away. Hello, everyone. I'm Rena. I normally play Lady Elizabeth on the Horror on the Orient Express campaign, uh, but for today, I will be not your keeper uh, because today we are at the gates of Troy following the Homeric story of the Iliad. And so I will be your muse for today. Uh, we'll be playing Cthulhu Dark, a scenario that I have written called Die Not Ingloriously. And I'm very excited to take you through this epic, or perhaps not so epic, adventure of ours. Uh, so to my right. Hello, everyone. My name is Bridget, and I am the owner of Symphony Entertainment. I'm super excited to be here because not only is this like a top shelf group of people, I'm actually really in love with the classics and Cthulhu Dark is one of my favorite systems. So I will be playing Zoe. She's 50 years old and she is a priestess of Poseidon. She is 50, but guys, she looks so much older than that. She looks tired. She looks worn. She interprets signs and she will perform certain rituals to try to determine, decipher, understand, translate the will of the gods. But there's something about her performance lately. It seems like a shell of its former self. It's like she's not 100% in the game. It looks like she's just barely pushing through. So whether it's a crisis of faith or she, her age is finally catching up with her or she's just really exhausted, um, she does the best she can uh, for her troops, uh, for her king, and for her people. But Zoe is definitely on the back end of super tired. Yes, well, she's not going to get much rest tonight, I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, and to Bridget's right. Uh, this is Lonnie. Today I am playing the role of Eulalia. I am a 29-year-old serving woman, serving under the court and the august presence of the king of Mycenae, Agamemnon, and my son has disappeared, so this is rather personal for me. And it's going to get more personal from here, at the end of the table. Hi, I am Miranda, and uh, today I'm playing Leon, 19-year-old foot soldier ready to prove himself and earn glory and honor on the battlefield. We'll see if he manages to get any of that today. And to my left. I'm Mike. Normally I'm in the keeper's chair, but today I am in the soul and body of Damon, a soldier who, while capable and uh, still alive at the uh, ripe old age of 35, he has come to a moment of disgrace in his life. And while he has pled madness. He is still seeking this deep redemption in the eyes of his king and in the eyes of the gods before he dies. We'll see what we can do about that. Thank you all for joining me uh, in this game. 
so I would like to go through a brief review of the rules for Cthulhu Dark for any of our listeners who haven't played the system, and also because there's uh, some flavor text and maybe a couple other fun things I've added to the rules uh, for this particular setting. So the number one rule in Cthulhu Dark is you are squishy. You are very squishy. Although we are in the age of heroes and of great deeds and of gods walking on the earth, you are not those people. You are normal people. So while Agamemnon may be able to stride into battle on his own, you cannot. Uh, So you are more than likely, almost certainly, going to die or have something far worse happen to you. So accept that, have fun with it, and just make it a good story. Die gloriously if you can. The second rule is, in conjunction with the first rule, don't fight the mythos. Because you are squishy, if you try to fight the mythos, you will die. Immediately. Horribly. There are no rolls. You cannot get uh, You cannot get out of it. You just die. If you stab a Shoggoth, if you throw a Frisbee at the king in yellow, whatever it is you do, if you try it, you're going to die. So keep that in mind. The third rule is all about uh, dice. Uh, so you have your three D6s. Uh, those are the only dice that you are going to use today, uh, except for Bridget, who's got a little extra thing that she can do that she might talk about later. Uh, so your first one is your human die. This is the die that you roll whenever you're doing something normal. Uh, talking to an NPC, crossing a river, uh, any of those normal things that people can manage to do. Your second die is your profession die. This is what you roll whenever you're doing something that's related to your job. Uh, so you'll get to roll 2d6 in that case. Uh, so Damon and Leon, for example, your soldiers, uh, if you're wanting to inspect weaponry to find some clues about it, uh, if you're wanting to talk to other soldiers or do tracking, anything that a soldier would be able to do, you would get to roll 2d6 to add your profession. Your third die is your insight die, uh, or in this case, we're going to call it your insanity die. Uh, This is more appropriate to the setting, I think. Uh, And so with your insight die, this is what you roll whenever you see something or hear something or notice something out of the ordinary or that freaks you out uh, or that is beyond the pale of what mortals should see. So those are your three D6s. Uh, When it comes to rolls on a one to a three, you get a little bit of something. So you're talking to an NPC You want to know where Alexander went, this other NPC. The NPC might say on a three, oh, well, I think Alexander went that way, but I'm not sure. You get a little bit of something. If you roll a four, you get exactly what you asked for. Oh, Alexander went into that tent. If you roll a five, you get a little bit extra. Oh, Alexander went into that tent, and I saw him arguing with someone about five minutes ago. So a little extra there. If you roll a six, sixes are bad. Uh, if you roll a six, you you see past the veil. The gods reveal something to you that you were not meant to know, and you will have to roll your insanity die because you're going to see or hear something that you shouldn't. Uh, maybe you notice this NPC's eyes uh, are actually dark voids. Perhaps their mouth doesn't match up with the words they're saying. It's like there's a lag almost. Right? Could Could be any of those things. Could be you notice that they're actually a Gorgon. Who knows? But either way, you'll be making um, an insanity roll for that. With that in mind, your insanity starts at one. 
everybody is already at one. Please keep track of what your insanity currently is. Whenever you roll your insanity die, if you roll above your current insanity, it will go up by one. All right, so you're all on one. So Miranda, if you roll a three, your insight goes up to two. But Mike, if you roll a one, it stays on one. Whatever you're seeing, it's not bothering you for some reason. And you can explain in character why that's not bothering you. Maybe you're drunk, maybe you've seen worse on the battlefield, whatever it is. However, I have a bit of a house rule for this scenario, and this is called mania. If you roll a six on your insanity die, you are seeing too much. Not just something that you weren't meant to see. The goddess mania has given you some kind of look into things as they truly are. And you have a chance to lose more sanity. So you will have to roll again. So you have a chance of going up two points uh, on your insight die if you roll that six. Okay? So uh, this will trigger mania for you. Other dice rules, one of them um, is pushing the roll, but in this game, uh, we're going to call it hubris, uh, tempting the gods, because you are attempting to change your fate. Uh, if you fail on a roll, uh, you're talking to this NPC and you really need to know where Alexander is, uh, but you roll a two. You can push the roll by adding your insanity die. So this is, this is your, your hubris here, where you are tempting fate, you are telling the gods no. I'm going to get something out of this. And if your insanity die is higher than your regular die that you're rolling, your insanity will go up by one. Uh, and you'll see a little bit too much there as well. So that is the concept of hubris. The last thing, which is my favorite, is the concept of fate. And in this particular situation, fate is very appropriate. If you, the player, think it would be more fun if one of your fellows uh, failed in something you can choose to roll against them. I can also roll against you if I think it would be funny. This is the only time really that I will roll in this game. But it's not the character sabotaging the other character. So if Mike thinks it would be funny for Leon to not be able to flirt with this NPC, that is not Damon stepping in and tripping Leon and making him fall flat on his ass. That is the fates stepping in and saying, no, this was not meant to happen. It was not meant to be. So you can roll against each other and whoever, whoever has the highest in that situation wins. So we have fate, we have hubris, we have mania. Um, we have a lot of fun things uh, in, in this particular version of Cthulhu Dark. So those are the basics of the rules. I hope you will have fun with that. If you have any questions about rules at any point during the game, please do let me know. Uh, I'll be happy to clarify anything. Are we ready? We are. I am. Let's do it. As ready as we'll ever be. Let me at least not die without a struggle, inglorious, but do some big thing first. Men shall come to know of it. Hector to Achilles. It is the tenth year of the war against Troy. You have all spent a significant portion of your lives here on this battlefield. For some of you, it may be that you've grown up here as it is for you, young Leon. For others of you, you came here already as adults, but you've seen all of your adulthood fade away, drowning in blood and fear and the actions of the gods and their children as this war drags on and on and on. When you arrived here a decade ago, 
You came with great hope of honor and glory and riches, as all the priests told you with great certainty the gods were on your side, that yours was a righteous cause. You were coming to take back Helen, the queen of Sparta, who was stolen away by Paris of Troy. And that because of this glorious quest, it would be a year, two years maybe, before the gods caused the walls of Troy to fall before you. And then it became three years, and then four. And you've all seen brothers, sisters, siblings, family, friends die around you in service of this fight between the gods and their children and their grandchildren. You have seen great things, it's true. You have seen your own King Agamemnon, the lord of men, striding tall amongst the ranks, taking out hundreds of Trojans with his spear, with no scratch upon him. You saw Achilles fight the river as it rose up against him, and he returned unscathed. You've seen Odysseus, the wiliest of men, fighting in a circle of Trojans, taking them all down without aid. But these great feats are assigned only to the demigods, the great ones. It is you and your friends and your family who die, who sacrifice their blood, who give their lives in this seemingly never-ending war. And lately, things have gotten worse. About a month ago, King Agamemnon took a war prize, the priestess Chryseis, priestess of Apollo. He declared her far more beautiful than even his own wife, Clytemnestra, and he took her as his concubine. You all saw her father, the high priest Chrysus, come with cartloads of gold and treasure, begging the king to respect the sanctity of Apollo's temple and respect him as a father and return his daughter to him and to Apollo. And you all saw the king say no. And you watched as the priest stood in the center of your camp, raising his hands to the sky, rending his robes, and calling for the wrath of Apollo upon the camp of the Greeks. And that night the plague began. For weeks now, every night, you've heard the creaking of the plague carts as they rattle through every camp, in the camp of Odysseus, of Achilles, of Ajax, You've seen hundreds and hundreds of corpses taken away. You've heard the silence fall over the campsite. The singing dims. Miasma settles in. And still, Agamemnon refuses to save his people. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, the nightmares and the disappearances began. Every night for the past three weeks, all of you, everyone in the camp of Agamemnon, and only the camp of Agamemnon, have had strange, horrific visions at night. You can't sleep. You can't breathe in the dark. Every time you close your eyes, you hear screaming. You see red mist. You see dark figures and shadows. Something is tormenting the camp of Agamemnon. But of course, not the king himself. He seems to know nothing of this. And every night, people disappear. One night it might be a soldier, 
Another night, two stable boys. Sometimes it's a lower servant from one of the lesser temples. Three nights ago, Eulalia, it was your son, Callias, who disappeared. No one seems to know where they've gone. They've not been seen or heard from since. It seems the gods have abandoned you, despite the sacrifices, despite your pain, despite your cries. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And now, tonight, it has been a rare day of quiet with no fighting, no battle. Many of your camp appears too weak to stand as the plague ravages through, but at least it's been quiet. And the four of you, as twilight falls and the stars begin to sparkle in the sky, and you can smell the smoke of the campfires, you find yourselves in an antechamber of the Temple of Poseidon. You are seated in low wooden chairs in a semicircle. There is an altar, a small one, in the center of the room. There are tapestries depicting the Lord of Horses, the King of the Seas himself, hung all around the walls. And in front of you is seated Hilarion, the High Priest of Poseidon. He is a very tall man, He's taller than most of you, not as tall as the demigods, the children of the Olympians themselves, but still very tall. But he also looks gaunt. He looks as if something has half-destroyed him. You can see his bones sticking through his hands as they clutch at his walking staff that he clings to, as if he's afraid he'll fall out of his seat without it. You can see his cheekbones almost cutting through his skin. His robes are long and blue, the color of the sea, embroidered with dolphins and horses. But they appear almost garish in this dark, half-lit room. And this poor, older man, whose cheeks are flushed as he coughs, deep, racking coughs. He looks out at the four of you, and he says, <clears throat> Thank you all for coming to meet with me this evening. And then he looks at you, Zoe, and he smiles, and he says, Not that you had much of a choice there, Zoe. He laughs. You've heard this joke every day for the past ten years, but you pretend you haven't. <laughs> and he looks uh, back at the rest of you, and he says, I must... I must know. Have you all been... the dreams... Nightmares, have you? Damon, you feel his dark eyes almost burning into you. Somehow he's looking at you. And you're, you're not looking back at him, but you know he's looking at you. Damon probably keeps his eyes towards the floor because of the superstitions of his family, his people. To have nightmares and dreams are something that call him back to his last moments on the battlefield and they deeply trouble him. And so he would lift his head slightly and say, the nightmares have come and, and gone. I see it uh, on your face. Yes. And you, young Leon, what of you? Indeed, I have dreamt at night, but fear of nightmares is for the weak. These are but dreams. He chuckles a little bit, says, uh, the audacity of youth. <laughs> I remember it once, long ago, 
Lelia, have they ceased since Kaleas disappeared? They have not. They, they have not. They may never. Let us hope that is not so. Zoe, I have not heard you complain. You never complain, of course, but are they plaguing you too? The moment he asked that question originally, she just flinched, like a flinch went through her entire body. And every time someone confirms that they're having nightmares as well, she winces. And then when asked that question directly, she looks at him and there's a thin film of uh, tears over her eyes and she just bites her bottom lip and nods. Hilarion nods again and he looks away quickly as if to spare you your dignity. And he takes another cough, this deep, racking cough. You can almost see his lungs struggling through his chest as he coughs. This is not a well man. And he says, I don't know why our Lord Morpheus brings these to us. I know not what significance there is, but I will tell you, we are cursed. I don't speak, of course, of this curse from Apollo, the golden-haired, that is between Lord Apollo and his, his priests, and Agamemnon, our king, and the others that is not for us mere mortals to trouble with. But this, these disappearances, these nightmares, this is something, something else. Some god is angry with us. Perhaps you are aware that other camps are not experiencing these visions or the disappearances. I spoke to my counterpart in the camp of our lord Odysseus. Nothing. Of our lord Nicanor, nothing. Our lord Ajax, and so on. Nothing. And that tells me either someone in this camp has angered a god and they have unleashed wrath upon us, or someone has called upon a god to punish us. And he coughs again, uh, and he's quiet for a moment, and he looks at each one of you in turn, holding eye contact as much as you will allow him. And he says, You're probably wondering why it's the four of you. And I will tell you, last night I had a vision. The same vision. The shadows, the screams. But this time I saw faces. I saw you. All of you, emerging from the shadows. I have been given a sign, I believe, that you are chosen by some god looking out for us to end this plague, this curse. Perhaps it is your unique skills and connection to what has been happening, but you are chosen. Four of you. Will you take it? Will you... Will you stop this? And he looks at each and every one of you in turn. I can't offer you monetary reward, except the treasure when Troy falls, and it will, it will fall. But I can offer you glory. I promise... He coughs again. I promise when you end this, I will take your names to... Agamemnon, the lord of men, myself. I will tell him of your deeds. I 
will see them written down in the songs that will be sung of this battle. That is what I can give you, immortality. I sit a little straighter on the... Yeah, I, I think I probably look up when he says the word immortality. Mm-hmm. And um, being the elder soldier here, I probably stand up and say, it matters not what happens to us, it matters how we react. We will cure this plague. Yes. Yes, I believe you. Zoe, will you be the emissary of the gods on this quest? The look on Zoe's face is so difficult to explain, but if she could disappear and run out of this room right now, she would. But she sniffs, she stands, um, and very formally and respectfully, she'll say, uh, as I am summoned, I shall do my best. Good. To start, you could speak to Eola. Her husband is the most recent to disappear. She came to the temple this morning to sacrifice great distress. Perhaps you could start there. Later, maybe... Eulalia, you would wish to speak to your son's comrades. Perhaps that will also help, but Eola is the most recent to experience this loss. Eulalia, you know the name Eola. She used to serve under you. She was a kitchen maid until she got married to a soldier about six months ago, and she moved out into the married person's quarters on the outskirts of the camp. So you know her, and you've met her husband, Leandros. So this is perhaps slightly disturbing news for you. He rises to his feet, Hilarion, and uh, tottering on his staff, he says, uh, I will make supplication for you to Poseidon. And he gently lifts and lowers his hands uh, in a gesture for you all to go to your knees in front of the altar. And he slowly makes his way to the back of the room to one of these tapestries depicting Poseidon arising out of the sea. Uh, He pulls aside the tapestry and he pulls out a small wicker cage with a white chicken in it. And uh, he carries the cage up to the altar. He takes out the chicken. He sets the the cage down. You can all see that the chicken is very calm. It's not squawking or fluttering or trying to escape. Zoe, you know that sacrificial animals are often given some kind of herb to make them calm down and relax before a sacrifice uh, so that they don't try to run away. He holds up this chicken and he starts saying a prayer to Poseidon and he takes a sacrificial bronze dagger and he in one stroke slices the throat of the chicken and the blood begins to pour over the altar and he dips his fingers in the blood and sprinkles it onto each of your foreheads chanting the blessing of Poseidon be upon you the blessing of Poseidon be upon you as he sprinkles this hot blood onto your face lays the chicken out on the altar and he slices open its belly with the knife and he looks at you Zoe and he says Zoe will you read the oracle for us see what the gods have to say for your great adventure she winces again but she will approach the altar and attempt to do this reading this is going to be 2d6 this is going to be a regular roll got it so you're not casting knuckle bones this is reading the entrails Two and a three. Okay, so you look into the into the chicken. A white chicken is usually considered a good omen, but uh, inside the belly of this chicken, the liver is black. And you point it out to Hilarion, and he just sort of winces a little bit. He says, 
inconclusive. This tells me that you will make your own fate today. And he looks at you again, Zoe, and he says, Do you wish to cast the bones, perhaps, to ask the gods for more? Again, it's one of those moments, if she could disappear out of this room, she totally would. It's like, how, like out of all the bad things that have happened, how did I wake up and end up in this bull today? And she bows reverently and says, with your permission, uh, then she'll reach into her robes beside the chicken and she will attempt to attempt to read these knuckles. Okay, so you're going to cast your knuckle bones onto the altar. Uh, roll 5d4. Alrighty. Uh, looks like that sum came to a 14. Okay. Hopping over to the chart. So as she's nudging these knuckles around and she's looking at that black liver and she's looking at the blood, um, she will uh, run her index finger across her forehead and just very gently lick the blood that on that is on her finger. Uh, and in almost like she's tasting a recipe, uh, she'll look at the bones and she says, if we persist in our struggles after many trials, we will eventually succeed. Uh, there is perseverance through adversity. This is a crown that we can seize. Valerian nods, and he looks a little bit more relieved, perhaps, as he says, Yes. I am grateful, as always, for your oracular skills, Zoe. And he takes a deep breath and coughs again. He says, There's nothing more I can do for you now. I must... I must rest. Go speak to Eola... Return to me when you have learned what you can learn. When you have dispelled this curse, I will be praying for you. I have set the acolytes to pray and light the torches. Just go with the gods. May your fates be glorious. And he turns and he totters out of the room, leaving the four of you with blood on your faces, a dead chicken, and some knuckle bones on the floor. You are alone. Twilight has fallen. What would you like to do? We have some inquiries to make, yes. Some sources of information to go and uh, find. Yes. Yes. Indeed. Does anyone know of this Eola? I do. She uh, she worked in the kitchen for Lord Agamemnon when I knew her. She married a soldier and left the household. I guess it's her husband that's disappeared very well. Would you be so kind to make introduction? Yes, I can do that. I'm very, very reluctant to do that because I would rather talk, but I would rather talk to my son's friends, but I would rather talk to my son's friends without these people around. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You would know, and the soldiers would know where the married person's um, encampment is for Eola's husband's unit. Uh, each unit has its own in a part of the camp, so you'd be able to lead them there. Who is taking torches? It is dark out. All you have are the campfires. So who would be carrying torches? Oh, I would for sure. Ed, same. I would a bigger well. torch than Damon. Oh yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not about, it's not about the size of the torch. Let's trust, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so would Zoe carry a torch or would she leave it to the to the others? Zoe will definitely be torched less. Okay. Uh, as befits your station. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
So Damon and Leon, as soldiers, Damon, you're old enough and experienced enough to be a swordsman, so you can have your sword with you if you would prefer. Uh, Leon, being a young soldier, you'd be a spearman, so you would have a spear and shield. Whether you are carrying them around the camp with you is up to you. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely take my sword with me. My belief is that there is a redemption to be gained here, and it may need my uh, sword arm uh, to, to do so. Does Leon have his spear? Almost certainly. So, uh, we, we have a couple weapons, at least. All right. Never leave home without it. Never. Uh, so, you depart from the temple into the gathering twilight. You can hear briefly the sea lapping against the shore far off in the distance. You can smell the smoke of the campfires. You can hear the chatter of the soldiers and their families and the servants all around you, but it's quieter than what you've become accustomed to over the last ten years. And you begin to hear the creaking of the wheels of the plague carts, the lowing of the oxen as they begin to move into the camp to fill out their task to take the corpses down to the shore for burning. And you hastily avoid looking at them to avoid bringing a bad fate upon you, to avoid the evil eye. And you can make your way through the camp carrying your torches. Mosquitoes buzz in your ears the sand fleas nip at your ankles, but you barely notice them anymore after so long. Everyone who moves around you seems muted, almost. Quieter, sadder. They still talk. You can still hear the occasional musical instrument being plucked as someone attempts a sad song and then gives up. Mm. All around you is the hustle and bustle of camp at night as you make your way to the edge of the encampment. Rena, may I ask a couple quick questions? Yes. These are things that Zoe would just kind of be mulling over in her head as uh, they're moving through the camp. How long ago did the nightmares start? Uh, the nightmares began about three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. And the disappearances coincided exactly with the nightmares, the best that she can remember? Yes. Same night. Ooh super bad we're all gonna die okay and then the disappearance just just from what she's heard from people praying for help at the temple and talking to uh the people that she has are these nighttime disappearances or are they just happening at all times during the day they disappear at night people wake up and they find friends or family members have disappeared okay um and from an astrological standpoint did anything unique happen three weeks ago Nothing that you can remember other than the, the nightmares and the disappearances starting on the same night, which is a bad omen. But you, you can't remember any signs in the stars that night. But then again, the stars have seemed strange ever since Apollo turned against your camp. So it's a little hard to tell. Oof. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Those are just things she's thinking about as they're making their way into the camp. So as you go, are you moving in silence? Do any of you talk to each other? I probably have blinders on at this point. I am very insistent on keeping a steady pace, partially because I want to get away from plague-ridden people, yeah, and partially because I think as Damon goes through the camp, hearing 
songs and music from my brothers and, and sisters and others in battle start up and then cease because what is likely their hearts being filled with despair over what has happened is something I need to be away from because I have a, we have something to accomplish. And so he's very much in that mode of let's get on with this. Let's get over this. He's seeking that change. And so I think that's where Damon's driving himself and likely just speed walking or whatever. (laughs) He's probably, you know, striding as long as he can to, to pick the pace so we can get, get to the glory part. Because I'm tired of the death. Valid. I am steadily walking, but as I'm walking, I'm moving my torch from side to side almost unconsciously as I'm looking off into the darkness, hoping to see something. Hopefully it looks like my son. I have no expectation in my mind that this should be, but I don't know. Leon would likely be not talking to Damon, but keeping pace with Damon, possibly even pushing the pace. I mean, I know he's good at running away from things, so I would probably just be like kind of uh, pushing him a little bit and glaring. Not physically pushing, but but walking <laughs> fast enough that he's trying to keep up ahead of me. Excellent. Uh, so as, as you make your hasty way uh, through the camp... You, you move through the main unit, and you hear all these people talking in hushed tones, and you smell meat roasting over the fire, and then you cross into the outer part of camp, where the married people get to have their own little tents, uh, slightly larger if anyone has children, but you know not the barracks that Damon and Leon are used to, uh, with hundreds of soldiers all in cramped quarters. Each couple gets their own little tent uh, for some privacy. Uh, and for this unit, uh, it's, a, it's a smaller encampment, let's say, for the married people here. But all of you notice when you cross over into this part of the camp, it's quiet. There's no smoke stinging your eyes. You don't see the blaze of any campfires communal or otherwise. You don't hear soldiers talking to each other or house partners talking as they carry crockery and pour wine. You don't hear any movement, even. It's just quiet. It seems too quiet out here. Has anyone else noticed that? Indeed, it is quiet. Everyone is in their tents. Are there any signs of life? All of you give me a human role. Damon and Zoe, you're a little too distracted by how quiet it is, maybe, because you're not used to silence. Zoe, you're used to the hustle and bustle of the temple. Damon, you're used to all the loud noises from your fellow soldiers and the clanking of armor and all the swearing and all all of that kind of noise. So it just kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. But Leon, being a younger soldier, and uh, Eulalia with her keen ears, her keen servant's ears, you both pick up what sounds like crying. Yeah, you definitely hear sobbing coming from a tent further into this married person's encampment. And Eulalia, you in particular recognize that sound because you've heard it before. 
when Eola would break something, drop a bowl, or she'd burn the dinner, or spilled wine on her tunic, this she would let out this strange sort of hiccuping, sobbing sound. And it sounds like that to you, except stronger. And really, that's why we don't miss her in the court, because, well, I heard that sound a lot. <laughs> you probably did. But having heard it, I would move my torch that way and pick up my step slightly ahead of the soldiers. And I would say this way. I follow along. Zoe will very cautiously take up the rear. She's an older lady anyway, so she's definitely not about no hip scap and get at it. But the disquiet is weird for her, so she's intentionally kind of hanging back in any tents that she could just very quickly pop her head into, or she can get a feel or a read of the area. So she's joining. She's just intentionally being slow and bringing up the rear. So are you actually looking into any tents as you go? Yeah, she absolutely would, because this is, this is not okay. This is next level not okay on top of 10 years of a whole lot of not okay. <laughs> and Miranda's just like, no. Why would you do that? You never <laughs> look in the tents. <laughs> never look in the tents. So you, you poke your head into uh, a few tents, um, Zoe. There, there, there don't appear to be any tents that you can see that would be large enough to indicate families you know, with children okay. and, and so on. It just appears to be married couples, perhaps a, a married triad uh, in, one, in one place, three beds in one tent. Give me a human roll. See if you find anything. All righty. <laughs> Oh, she found something. Oh. It begins. She found too and much in the, the tent. <laughs> too much. So, so uh, it, it seems fate has made you curious today. Yes. Everyone else moves uh, a little bit uh, ahead of you as they're moving more quickly towards the sound of the crying. But you, you poke your head into a few tents. You see you know, these married... Uh, people's beds and things. Everything looks very neat, as you would expect from uh, a camp of soldiers. And then you, you poke your head into uh, another tent. It's, it's about two or three down from where the crying appears to be coming from. Now that you're so close, all of you can hear it. And something looks odd in here. And you can't quite figure out what it is when you're just looking. Some Something isn't making sense. Maybe it's the dark that because there's no campfires here and the torches are a bit ahead of you. But there's shadows in here that shouldn't be. You see shadows for the beds, for the pitcher of wine. Then you realize there's a shield and a spear in here. Oh. Leaning against the tent pole. And you know that a good soldier would not leave their tent alone with their weapons in it. And then that has you looking past the spear and the shield at the shadow it's casting on the back of the tent. And you see what looks like the shadow of wings. These large, sharp, jagged wings silhouetted behind the shadow of this shield. Wow appear to be moving. So I'd like that insight roll, please. Or that insanity Ooh. roll. Bridget needs one too after that. Great description. Wow. Alright, I go up by one. Yep, so you are now up to two insanity. And you look at these wings that are that are rising up, these massive wings, and you see them flutter, and you shudder 
a bit, Zoe, and you and you blink, trying to to get this out of your mind, and it's suddenly not there. You don't know if that's because the source of light has now moved, and you can't really see shadows at all in this uh, in mm. this dark place. But there's no more shadowy wings there. Uh, she will backpedal very quickly to the point that she trips over her own feet. Uh, she will land hard on her butt. Uh, gasping for breath, she will scramble out and then she will very quickly uh, try to catch up with the rest of the party. In all of those tents, not a single human, but soldiers left their gear and there's the weird wing thing. Okay, so she's just going to very quickly scramble up to the uh, to connect with the rest of the party. Do you tell them what you saw? Yeah, as soon as she comes up panting, um, she will explain, I believe something else is here. There's there's something there's something else here in this area. The tents, they're, they're, they're empty. And there are shields and there are swords, um, spears still hanging, but the, the tents are empty and I saw something moving, something winged. It was there for just a moment, but there's there's something else here. Something is wrong. And she's not doing well, very obviously. She's usually very stoic, calm, and I don't want to be here. Something definitely got underneath her fingernails on this one. Does the reaction from Zoe seem familiar? The um, rapid, perhaps... The Amania, the the divine madness. Yeah, to to Damon, this this feels uncomfortably close to you. I'll reach out and try to to steady her a bit. And I, Hellenically, I'm not sure about like physical touching, but if she doesn't reproach from it, I will just try to to steady her with my hand a bit and say there are many more challenges ahead, and we will see them together stay with us. Uh, she'll blink, bite her bottom lip, and nod, but she won't give you any type of verbal affirmation. Reunited, the four of you approach the tent. Uh, you can hear the crying much louder now, uh, and th there's a lot of <laughs> just like squeaking almost, coming from inside. It it's just a simple tent, you know, two-person tent, it looks like, um, and you can easily uh, push open the flap if you would like to. Are the soldiers, are y'all going in with her? Or are you going to stay outside? You'd probably go in. Um, I think I might stay outside just to uh, make sure nothing arrives, especially with this talk of a winged creature that may or may not have been seen. That's a good idea, Damon. I'll take the lead. <laughs> Zoe, Zoe, are you going in or staying out? Uh, Zoe is going to go with the numbers right now, so it looks like she's going in. Okay. So the, the three of you go in. Uh, we'll come back to you in a minute, Damon. But Eulalia, you're in the lead. And you, you walk into this tent, and the first thing you notice, Eulalia, as a trained servant, is it's a mess. It's very disturbing to you that she would leave her tent in such a condition. There's a pile of clothes on the floor. There's a shield and a spear laying on the ground. There's a pitcher of wine uh, that looks like it's been slightly cracked, and there's a... a wooden cup of wine that has been tipped over and you still see wine dripping onto the sand and it, it's just a mess you see uh, laying on the, the low bed uh, ahead of you is a girlish figure about 16 she's wearing a, a long white night dress uh, her face is buried in her bed coverings so you can't see it but she's got long dark hair it's unbound it's not put up uh, so she is definitely not looking for visitors at the moment and she is just sobbing as if her heart is breaking Aeola 
and I will uh, approach and grasp her gently around the shoulders. At your touch, the sobbing just kind of stops, and she sits up and looks at you wide-eyed. Her face is red. It's streaked with tears. Her eyes are red from crying. She clutches uh, the the blanket to her chest, and she looks up at you wide-eyed. She's, Mistress! Oh, Mistress, I didn't know you were coming. Forgive me, Mistress. And she just starts looking around her in absolute panic as she realizes you've seen her very messy home. I will uh, attempt to uh, talk her down, as I have done many times. Mm -hmm. It's all right. It's all right. We came as soon as uh, we were told about uh, Leandro. You're looking for Leandros. Oh. And she looks up as she hears you say we, and she realizes there's two other people in here, and she looks at you slightly scandalized, Leon, because uh, she's a, a young married woman in her nightdress with her hair undone in, in bed. But then she notices you, Zoe, and she cries out, Your eminence! Oh, I'm not worthy, your eminence! And she, she gets down on the ground, and she just bows her head forward. She's just looking at you on her knees. And all of you can see now, she's got red what looks like scratch marks on both of her cheeks across. And there's a little smattering of blood around them. And she's looking up at you, wild-eyed. How did you come to be injured, child? Injured? What do you mean, your eminence? She'll take, you know, her three-center fingers and go across her cheeks and, and then kind of point to hers like, your face, darling, what happened? She puts her fingers up to her face and touches her cheeks and then she pulls them away and and Eulalia, you're sitting right next to her so you can see the little touches of blood on her fingers and she just looks at them and then looks up at you, Zoe, in confusion as if she wasn't aware they were there. Uh, Eulalia, you can give me a roll. Give me a human roll because you're seated right next to her. Oh, sure. I, I, didn't, I didn't know your, your eminence. <laughs> okay. So with that six, Eulalia. Oh, Lord. <laughs> as you see Eola looking up in confusion at Zoe, you notice that there's skin under her fingernails. Mm. Perhaps these were self-inflicted. And then you lean back a little bit, maybe just as you realize what happened there, and you can see similar marks, similar scratches on the back of her neck and around her, the back of her shoulder blades and down the back of her arms as if she was systematically clawing away at her own skin in places. So I'd like to have that insanity roll for you, please. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just <Okay>. a five. <laughs> well, you still go up by one. Uh, yep, but this is definitely too. disturbing to you, Eulalia, because self-mutilation is is not something that people in your circles go in for. That That's only adepts of particular religious devotion, uh, perhaps for Dionysus. And she doesn't appear to be aware of it. And, and that's very uncomfortable. Yeah, especially because the scratches on her cheeks look almost like she was trying to claw her own eyes out. Oh, They definitely do. I just visibly shudder. You definitely look a bit disturbed there, Eulalia. So, Leon and Zoe, are you reacting to, to what you're seeing? Are you going to ask her anything? Are you looking around? What would you like to do? 
I would definitely take kind of a cursory uh, glance around the tent um, to see if there's anything, as they've been attending to Eola, to see if there's anything around that may have been missed. Okay, so the first thing you notice, Leon, as a soldier, is that shield and spear, they're on the ground. Instead of hung up neatly to protect the point of the spear, the front part of the shield Mm -hmm. is face down into the sand, and it looks like they were dragged in here, but this is not the way a a professional soldier would ever leave their kit. Yes. Eola, have you done anything with the... your husband's spear and shield? Oh, uh, She looks at you and she kind of blinks as if she's coming back to herself. Um, yes, yes, um, uh, so, I, I was, um, I was having, uh, the, the, the nightmares, you, you, you know, the nightmares, um, and I couldn't sleep and I was, I was so tired, I was so tired, and, and two nights ago, it was, it was bad, I, 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 I dreamed the shadow was, you know, the shadows in, in the dreams. It was in the tent. It was, it was like it was reaching for me, and I was, I was scared, and I woke up screaming because I thought someone was in the tent. I didn't know it was, it was the dream, and and I, and I was so scared. And last night I didn't want to go to sleep because I thought the shadow might come back. And 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 she starts hyperventilating a little bit, and and she calms herself down a little bit. And Leandros, he's been sleeping for three days. Every night, he says he doesn't have the dreams anymore. And so he said last night that he would stand outside and he would keep watch to make sure no one came in so that maybe I could sleep because I would know he was watching. And so I went to sleep and then I heard screaming and and and, and, and a fight but I thought it was the dream and I didn't wake up. And then I woke up, and, and, and she just starts bawling. It was all my fault, because he shouldn't have, he wouldn't have been out there if it, if I didn't want, ask him to, and, but he'd been to temple, and he wasn't dreaming, and I thought it would be okay, because he was well-rested, and it wasn't fair, and she just, like, looks really, <laughs> it wasn't fair, he can sleep, and I can't sleep, so... <laughs> Yeah, told him he could stay awake for one night so I could get some sleep, and then he's gone. And his, the, the the and she points at the the shield and the spears. They were on the ground outside the tent. He he wouldn't leave them like that. He was he was a very good soldier, very good soldier. And and so I brought them in so they wouldn't get get rained on or or, or something. And so I dragged them in, but I didn't know where to put them. And and then I went to the temple and. It's all my fault. And she just starts bawling. <sighs> Leon has no time for this. <laughs> I will uh, let the others care for her. But I will pick up the shield and the spear, give them a glance over, and then also store them in a way that is uh, proper and appropriate. Okay. So while you're doing that, we'll switch back over to Damon, who was standing guard outside. Damon, give me... A profession roll, so you can roll 2d6. You're standing out, you, you've got your torch, you're, you're having a look around, maybe. See if you notice anything. Ooh. Maybe I do? Got a 6 there on the profession die. So, you notice, first thing, uh, there are tracks outside this tent. Multiple tracks. 
you think you count four, five pairs of footprints, and then it looks like another set that's being dragged. Hmm. You can see the, the marks in the sand with your keen soldier's eyes, where it looks like this person was being dragged away. So, as you notice that, you have a quick look around the rest of the tent on the outside to see if there's any any other information you can gather here. And there's a little scraggly bush, you know, the, the kind of bush that you get on the beach when you're getting closer to the sea. It doesn't really grow leaves. It's just kind of pointy and annoying. But you see something glinting beneath it in your torchlight. And as you look at it, you feel this compulsion to pick it up. Sure. With a six, you feel a compulsion. <laughs> uh, yep. And you, in your curiosity, you reach down and you pick it up and it's this bronze dagger. It looks like the sacrificial dagger that uh, that Hilarion was using in the temple, that kind of dagger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very sharp. You almost cut yourself when you pick it up because the sides of it have been brutally sharpened and the point is like, like a needle almost. Mm. You feel like you could cut yourself just looking at it. And as you hold it and you look at it, there's a symbol on, on the pommel of this dagger and it's an eye. But where there should be perhaps eyelashes, there's a mass of wriggling serpents extending out of the eye. And as I say wriggling, it's almost like, maybe it's a trick of the torchlight, but it's almost like you can see them writhing around in this circular symbol. And Maybe it's just your mind tricking you, but you swear you can hear the hissing sound of serpents in the air. So let's have that insight roll, please. That insanity sure. roll. Hmm. Hmm. Seems I'm okay with this. Yep. <laughs> so you got a one. So you, you managed to blink and shake it away for a moment, but you, you have a dagger now. What do you do with it? Okay, so daggers, especially this type, are not going to be a soldier's weapon. They're more of a sacrificial implement as necessary. So I would probably return to the front of the tent. I would put it temporarily in my belt and then likely prepare to give it over to Zoe as she's in charge of all things uh, related to the gods in my mind. Okay, so you can uh, put it in your belt temporarily uh, and have a look at these uh, tracks uh, as they move off towards the main path. So back inside the tent. Leon, you were picking up the shield and the spear to put them up. Yep. Uh, as you pick them up, give me a roll with your profession. So 2d6. Okay. Can do. Not much. One and a three. All right. So you, you do notice that the strap on the shield is new. The shield itself is dinged up way you would expect from going into battle. It's been polished, but it's it's dinged up. But the strap appears brand new. So, that's a little strange, but mm, okay. Uh, Maybe his last one broke. You just needed a new one. Yeah, very possibly. Uh, and you can you can put the, the shield and the spear up where they won't be on the ground uh, getting attacked by sand fleas. Yes. So, uh, Eulalia and Zoe, you've got a hysterical Eola with you. What do you do? Uh, I pointedly look at Zoe in a manner of, can you say something to calm her down, please? 
and I will uh, reach for the jug of wine and look for a sponge and something to uh, bind these wounds with. Mm-hmm. There's bits of cloth that you can use um, and clothing and things. Not ne- not really a sponge in here, but there's there's cloth you could dip it in, dip into the wine, and then use that. Yeah, I will try and clean the scratches along her back and arms and shoulders. You start cleaning the wounds. She starts sniffling a little bit, but she's still crying hysterically. Zoe? Zoe visibly rolled her eyes in the back of her head with that, hey, can you go molly coddle this lady? Because Zoe's not really doing great herself, but she will do the priestly thing, as I say with air quotations that no one can see. Uh, She will uh, approach and kneel very gently and attempt to talk Eola down, but it's not its not compassionate, it's not loving, it's not adoring, it's almost very clinical. And she will attempt to reaffirm with uh, the story of the chicken and the vision from the priest that the four of us have been sent to remedy this. The gods, and she kind of winces when she says that, are on our side. It has been confirmed and ordained that we will find a solution for both these nightmares and uh, the location of your husband. However, we need you to calm down in order for us to um, be successful in these endeavors. Okay, uh, give me a roll. You can add your profession to it. You've probably had to calm people down before when they come in distress to the temple. So roll me 2d6s. Ooh, that's a three and a six on the profession. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So she looks like she's starting to calm down a little bit when you start talking to her. And then you mentioned the sacrifice and then you mentioned the gods and you know, the, the gods are with us and directing us. Her head snaps up and she looks at you and her eyes look kind of manic almost. Um, and she just sort of hisses. The gods are not with us. We are cursed. We are cursed. And she lets out this ear piercing shriek that you can hear outside Damon. Um, And then she starts rocking back and forth on her knees. And she's almost like she's chanting the the curse, the blood of the innocent, the blood of the innocent. We are cursed. And she bows down into the sand and starts bowing back and forth, back and forth. And she's, she keeps chanting this about the blood of the innocent and the curse. And when she comes up looking at you, Zoe, it's her eyes. It's like, she doesn't see you. They're, they're wild and her face is drawn. And then you realize she's bleeding. Oh, you look down and there is blood pouring from her chest. And you see, there's a tiny stone knife in her hand. The kind servants carry with them. Oh. And she has apparently made these deep cuts across her chest and the blood is flowing and she is rocking back and forth on her knees, uh, the blood pouring down as she's looking off into the distance somewhere you can't see. So give me that insight roll, please. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're totally welcome to that one. Yep. Ooh, she maintains. Uh, Leon, you're going to make an insight roll for this, too, because you're seeing this. Eulalia, you don't see the blood because you're behind her, but you do have the unsettling screaming. Not phased. You are holding it together. Yeah, I mean, hysterics and Uh all this. (laughs) So am I rolling as well? Uh, No, because you didn't see the blood yet, unless someone draws your attention to it. I mean, I've heard her screaming before. That's nothing new. 
I'll probably step into the tent at this point. So Damon steps into the tent with torch in one hand, sword in the other. And uh, Damon, you see this 16-year-old girl uh, on her knees. Her gown is torn. She's sliced herself, perhaps, across the chest. These deep gouges pouring down. She's got claw marks on her face. And she is wild-eyed. And you, this this looks to you like the grip of mania. Mm. Uh, so you're going to make an insight roll for that one. Sure. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a boss. So you rolled um, a six on your uh, your insanity die there, Damon. So that means that you're going to be gripped by mania yourself for a moment. Oh. It's okay. Not the first time. <laughs> so as you look into this girl's eyes, as she's chanting something about blood, there's blood pouring down. Uh, you see in the flickering torchlight this shadow on the wall behind you or behind her and there's her head and her hair and her hair appears to be wriggling Uh for a moment the shadows on the wall and then you see these little heads of serpents Mm -hmm. these shadowy serpentine heads flickering out their tongues going in and out and in and out on the wall of the tent in your the shadow of your torchlight and you swear you hear them hissing and it's so loud it drowns out the screaming for a moment just this hissing of the snakes and this this petrifying glance of these serpents in the shadows on the wall so give me that second insanity roll please you betcha so i maintain you hold it together uh, for for the moment. You're you're still kind of gripped with this this fear almost as you see the blood and everything. Sure. But there, there's work to do here. There's someone in distress. You blink and the shadows are gone. I heard her talk about being cursed, right? Yes, she she was chanting it. The tent floor is what sand. I will step forward. Um, almost not so much caring that she's likely in the middle of bleeding out all over the sandy ground here. Mm-hmm. And I will pitch from my back, I will I will pitch the ritual bronze dagger at her feet and say, it is clear she was cursed. This is her weapon of choice. Three of you see Damon step in and toss a bronze dagger onto the ground in front of this screaming woman. What do you do? Is this an accusation, Damon? It is an omen, clearly. Found outside her tent. Just beyond. There are tracks outside as well. Someone was carted off here. Carted? Uh, Yes, she said that her husband kept watch Hmm. while she slept. Obviously not well. How is she responding to the bronze dagger at her knees or at her feet? Interesting question. Give me a roll, Damon. Just 1d6. Sure. See how she reacts to this. Three. She looks at it. It does stop her chanting, screaming. And she just looks up at you. And she looks back at the dagger. She says, Is that from the temple? From outside your tent. I've never seen it before. I roll my eyes. You can see she seems to have kind of snapped out of her her madness 
but she doesn't even notice the bleeding and the cuts and everything. She's just looking at you very confused. And he's like, that's what, that's what priests use, right, your eminence? And I'm glaring through her right now, sincerely considering doing something to trigger her to go back into mania, just so I can start asking her some questions she might actually be able to answer. Dumb question. Do we know what temple she means when she says temple? Is there only the temple of Poseidon? No, um, you would all know this. Uh, every encampment has its own temple, major temple to the, the 12 Olympians. So, you know, Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, etc. And there's also scores of little one-room temples called shrines around each camp uh, for lesser gods uh, or those who don't live on Olympus. Uh, so she didn't say which temple. She's just been saying the temple. What temple did he go to to, to stop the dreams? I don't know. Um, Makarios sent him and, and some of the others to, he said, the temple, but he wouldn't say which one. Um, and when he came back from the temple, he slept that night. He didn't dream. But he, he said he, he was on a mission and it was all good and it was okay. And I asked which god, because if that god made his dream stop, maybe maybe they could stop mine. But he said I wasn't ready yet. He said one, one day soon he would take me to the temple, but that I wasn't ready. Who is this Makarios? The quartermaster for this unit. Hmm. And uh, as, as you say that... It's like she suddenly realizes that she's bleeding and she just looks down and she looks at her hands, which are covered in her own blood. She's got blood pouring down her nightdress and she looks up at you wide eyed. Oh, please don't start screaming again. And promptly passes out. Oh, okay. Woo. (laughs) (laughs) Glad she's gone. (laughs) She quickly looks at you, Leia, and says... Did your son stop having nightmares? Do I know this? Give me a roll. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you're not sure. You do know with a three. You didn't hear him calling out or crying out uh, the couple nights before he disappeared. But you were taking herbs to help yourself sleep deeper at that point. And you're honestly not sure if you didn't hear him because he wasn't crying out or if it's because your drugged sleep was too deep for you to to notice it. I don't know, but there's a temple that uh, cures the... I, I would be shocked if no one was telling everyone about this. Such a rumor would go around like wildfire if there was a temple... Unless those had spread the rumor disappeared before they could lay tongue to it. I love that you're just having this conversation with this 16-year-old girl passed out, passed bleeding out girl, all over right. the floor. <laughs> yeah. Like, she she, she's, just, she's just on the ground, passed out, bleeding everywhere. And you guys are just standing there going, mm, yes, no dreams. Mm. I will uh, wave at the two soldiers in a motion to pick her up and put her on the bed. It's been a long 10 years, okay? In a rough couple months. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Jane Lyon. Oh, I guess I'll take the arms if you want to take the legs. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab her legs and with uh, Leon's help, move her to the bed. Yeah, so you can pick her up and, and put her on the bed. And 
patch her up as best I can right now. I will also take the knife. Eulalia, you pick up the knife and you see this symbol. This eye with this these eyelashes made out of serpents and, and you see them sort of wriggling sinuously in, in the torchlight and you hear hissing in the back of your head and it, it's deeply deeply uncomfortable and I'd like an insanity roll for you please oh boy uh, well I'm, I'm at three now <laughs> okay so you go up by one yep. uh, this is very very wrong. This this feels wrong to you. This whole room feels wrong to you, Eulalia. The, the crying, the blood, the chanting from earlier, this dagger with the serpents, whatever it is, this this is very wrong and you feel very uncomfortable in here. I throw the knife in a corner. I just, I just instinctively just toss it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you see Eulalia throw the dagger uh, away into a corner you all like to do. Shall we continue? This place is cursed. Let's get out of here. Uh, Zoe will pick up the dagger that um, Eulalia just threw out, but after she picks it up, if she can, she would like to snatch the shield that's Mm -hmm. been propped up, and she's going to go outside, and she's going to attempt to do a reading on that knife and that shield, because she saw the wings coming off of a shield, correct? Uh, yeah, coming off a shield in in one of the other tents. Okay, but first you're going to see the symbol on the on the dagger. These writhing Damn serpents it. around the eye. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to let you get away with that one? Touch all the mythos. <laughs> so you're going to give me an insanity roll. Oh lord. Yep, she's going up by one. This is a bad okay. day. <laughs> well, you keep touching everything. <laughs> <laughs> True. All right. So you, you can take the, the shield and the knife outside uh, and sit down in the, the torchlight and have a reading. While you're doing that, um, are the rest of you leaving the tent as well? Are you staying in there? Yeah, I'm not staying in here. I'm happy to leave the tent. Well, there's yeah. really nothing for us here. Okay, so you all leave the tent. Zoe sits down cross-legged outside uh, with this shield and this dagger. Uh, Zoe, I'd like you to give me first, before you do your your bone casting, I'd like you to give me a human roll. Uh-oh. Okay. Um, so you're not going to notice that, but uh, you can give <laughs> you can give me a profession <laughs> roll, so 2d6, because you've seen this symbol on this dagger now. Oh. You saw the wings earlier, so see if you can figure out something. Okay. So she got a 2 and a 4, but I... I'm feeling my hubris right now. Uh-huh. This is more information than we've received in a long time. We're getting somewhere. There's a temple. Maybe this temple is causing the disappearances. You know, they're, 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 things are starting to fall to pieces, but also come together. So she's going to push it. Okay, so roll 3d6. As in your hubris, you attempt to learn more. Yeah, this character about to die so fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. That is a six on a human, four and a three. Okay, so your insight doesn't go up with the three, but with the six, you look at this symbol and and something about it in connection with the shadow of the wings that you saw earlier strikes a chord with you. Hmm. You've seen this symbol before. You know you have. And you can't remember where, and then you make yourself focus and almost kind of go into a trance. Okay. 
as you're thinking back. And you remember in your early days when you were studying to, to be a priestess, you were at one of the, the temple libraries. Yes, yes. You, you found a scroll, a dusty old scroll in, in the back somewhere. It looked like it hadn't been touched for years. And you were curious, so you opened it. Of course. Yes, and you saw this symbol in this scroll. You, you remember it. This is a symbol used by a cult. A cult that you haven't heard of in a very long time. Not since reading that scroll, actually. It, it, you thought it was wiped out, that it was gone. Um, but this cult was the cult of the Aranes, or the Furies. And you, yes, you remember this symbol in particular was the symbol of Megara. Jealous rage. Uh-oh. You, you remember that. And yes, but that, that's just one of them. There's two more. What's this cult doing here? And as you're, you're thinking about this and, and you're going through it, you feel a sharp pain in your finger. And you look down at the hand that's holding the dagger, mm-hmm. and a small bronze serpent has bitten into your finger out of the symbol on this dagger. Oh, God. Yes. How about that uh, in- insanity roll, please? Listen, it is on the way. Oh. She's gonna die. All right. She goes up again. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you see this small bronze serpent with its tiny bronze fangs sunk into your finger. You see these beady little red eyes looking at you. Um, the rest of you, you you hear Zoe give a like short cry, and she starts shaking her hand, and you don't see anything. Get it off me! Get it off me! Okay. She's um, just wandering around outside the tent with this dagger and shaking it? Is that what's going on? Like, how, how bad is the freak out? That's what I want to know. Uh, with this uh, two sanity loss she took in the last 30 seconds, it's a pretty big freak out. Uh, she's very close to um, actually severing off that finger level freak out. Hmm. What, what's your insanity at now, Zoe? Oh, four. <laughs> okay. So remember, once you hit five, you can start destroying evidence to try and make yourself a little <laughs> saner. But not yet. So... You imbeciles, do you not see it? Get it off of me, get it off of me. Is this the point where we slap her, or? Yeah. <laughs> you want to try slapping a <laughs> priestess? Down next to the teenager. <laughs> <I know. laughs> like, mm, maybe not uh, appropriate. Uh, there's nothing there. I don't. We don't see anything. There's nothing for us to get off of you. Uh, as Leon... As Leon says that, you're shaking your hand, Zoe, and the little serpent goes flying off into the sand, and you see it slithering away off into the darkness. Oh my oh god. Lord. Is there oh some god. sort of contagion in that tent? Oh god. Muse, how, how many other tents are close to this one? So the tents are in nice, neat rows, right? Um, and so there is a row stretching out alongside this tent, and then there's a row directly across. Um, and the tents are spaced about eight feet apart. So there's tents on either side, and then tents across as well. I think Damon probably mentally just considers the thought of, of burning the tent down. 
and then probably reconsiders it. But he, he probably turns to it just momentarily with the torch. Not getting it too close, but just considers it. And then turns back to Zoe and says, If you are done, we must continue on. She wants to be offended, but she's just having a really bad day. So she just nods <laughs> in agreement. So, Damon, you have these tracks that you discovered that are mm -hmm. leading into the, the main path between these rows of tents. Yes. Um, you have the name of Makarios, uh, who is the quartermaster. And you know that the quartermaster's tent uh, is on the very edge of camp, usually. He gets one of the nicer, fancier digs, uh, quieter digs, too. Uh, because he gives everybody their money. So uh, you have those two pieces of information. What would you all like to do? We should stop with the quartermaster first, and then perhaps these tracks afterwards. And perhaps somewhere along the way, we will get to the matter of your son. That seems like a reasonable course of action. I probably like arch my eyebrows slightly at anything other than piss and vinegar from the other soldier. <laughs> Perhaps it, it is best if you talk to the quartermaster yourself and I talk to my son's friends. Speed the investigation. Hmm. Are we splitting the party? Don't say it too gleefully. <laughs> so excited. Like, ooh. ooh. <laughs> it works 100% of the time. Yeah, but then there's only half of the stuff um, to touch. If you're with one group and not the other. True. <laughs> well, perhaps you are correct. Perhaps there should be a, a splitting between us. We can cover more ground that way. Although we would be remiss if not, uh, we did not send a right and sturdy soldier of arm with you. I point to oh, Leon. So yes, you mean me, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> For truly, we will want someone at your back, one we can trust. I should scarcely be in any danger, I think. No, of course not. Women are rending themselves and bleeding all over their tents. This is common. Il is a, a high-strung girl. I am visibly annoyed at the idea that somebody would be accompanying me. But um, if he gets real insistent, then I will, um, in very ill humor, accept. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so Damon, then you will be accompanying her? No, no, of course not. Mm -hmm. The younger soldier, this is your duty. Zoe and I will speak with the quartermaster. And I will go talk to children. You are closer in age. Probably turn and look at Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> Zoe has zero arguments about this plan. Um, <laughs> none whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> Bridget has a few. Zoe has none. Uh, Eulalia and Leon, when you do make your inquiries, um, ask about... Uh, Eulalia's son and possibly his introduction to um, a religious sect, a cult. Uh, see if the names Megora or the Furies uh, seems to ring a bell. This iconography I recognize from a long, long time ago. I think there's another religious presence here. The rest of you know the Furies. Like, this is, they are important to Greek religion. You all know that the Furies are spirits of vengeance. Um, they are usually called upon uh, when great horrific crimes are committed and go unpunished. Uh, actually, you all know that the Furies are associated with King Agamemnon's lineage, in fact, um, because his father, 
killed his own brother's children and fed them to him. Uh, and so it's rumored that there is a curse uh, on the entire family lineage and that uh, King Agamemnon's father himself was taken by a fury. You don't know that for sure, but it's rumored. So these are vengeance spirits. And you would all know about them. But I would only half believe them because, well, uh, King Agamemnon spent time not being the ruler uh, that he was rightfully supposed to be. Instead, there was someone else there, and then he took the throne back. So clearly he's favored by the gods. So uh, Leon and Eulalia are going uh, back into camp to talk to Kalias's friends. And uh, Damon and Zoe are going to speak to Makarios, the quartermaster, correct? Yes. yes. Correct. Okay. Yep. Correct. So uh, we'll start with Zoe and Damon. The two of you follow the main path through this, this campsite. And Damon, the tracks are going in that same direction. Hmm. So it's almost like killing two birds with one stone here as you follow the main path towards the edge of the camp, and it's it's still quiet. It is still empty. No one reacted to the screaming. There's barely a breeze ruffling the sand in your hair. It's very eerie as you move through what's left of this, this campsite. And then you get to the very edge and the tracks split. Dragging and several of the footprints keep going off out of the camp. Mm -hmm. And two sets of footprints turn upwards towards a larger, more well-appointed tent. A tent you recognize as that of Quartermaster Macarius. I will point out the tracks to Zoe, but yet continue towards the Quartermaster's tent. She'll follow. So you make your way up to Macarius's tent... Uh, tent is perhaps a bit of an understatement. Uh, his is a bit of a more permanent structure. Hmm. It's wood with canvas. Uh, it's much larger as well. It's got an actual door made out of wood. Uh, it's the, they're these wooden slats. Um, and as you go up to the door, you can see bright light blazing through the cracks in, in the door. Very bright light. Would the quartermaster also have some sort of is it common for him, I guess, would I know, to have some sort of um, weapons forge or a bale fire or something like that going? Is that common? He would normally have his own fire going inside his, his home, uh, especially if he's staying up working on, uh, on paperwork or uh, any of the other things that a quartermaster would normally do. So the fact that there is light on itself isn't strange. It's the fact that one else in this part of the camp seems to be around. Yeah. But his light's on. Hmm. Yes. Probably give half a moment of pause at that. Probably at that thought that everything else around here is dead quiet, and yet there is some roaring fire going on inside this tent that seems very strange. So I think Zoe would probably see Damon just put his right hand towards the the hilt of his sword, not necessarily preparing to draw it, but make sure that he knows where it's at 
in case there are uh, anything else uh, untoward inside the tent. And then he'll uh, reach out and uh, pull the flap aside if it's covered. Yep. So you can pull the door aside uh, and the first thing you notice is all of this light and the smoke. It makes both of you kind of cough and choke a little bit how much smoke suddenly comes billowing out towards you. Wow. Uh, and then after a few seconds you uh, coughing and choking, you kind of get used to the light and, and the haze of the smoke. And you realize that why it's so bright and smoky is the candles. There are literally hundreds of candles on the floor of this tent. And they are set up in some strange pattern. It looks kind of like, almost like interlocking circles, but making angles. And they don't quite fit. It, it, your brain cannot comprehend how these candles are set up. Hmm. And then you follow the pattern of these, of these candles towards the center of the room. There's a, an open patch with no candles on it. And you see a patch of something in that circle. And there's something dripping. And your eyes follow the dripping upwards. And you see a man. Or what used to be one. He is stretched out above the ground, face down. His arms are outstretched. His legs are outstretched. He's maybe two feet off the ground. He's completely naked. His head is down. He looks like he's been horrifically, brutally tortured with cuts and bruises and scars and burns. And then you realize how he's hanging off the ground in this way. His spine has been split open. Ugh. And his lungs have been pulled out of his back. And there are hooks through his lungs attached to ropes hanging from the top of this tent. And then you see the lungs move. And shall we leave it there for this evening? <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful place to uh, stop it. So thank you all for joining us for this first of a two-part series as we um, likely in very short order will go absolutely nuts but in a good way in a good way and uh, thank you Rena for giving us so far a very descriptive story uh, which I am enjoying a ton of thanks to uh, Bridget for joining us to for, for Lonnie and for Miranda so far this has been absolutely fun and uh, I can't wait back to get back to the next one 